Today's readings are Isaiah 65, verses 17 to 19, and John 20, verses 1 through 18. They can be found on pages 692 and 1000 of the Bible's next year's seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word, Isaiah 65, 17 to 19. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. John 20, 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but, not, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. <clears throat> As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out <clears throat> in Aramaic, Rabbanai, <coughs> which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he, that he had said these things to her, the word of the Lord. And I invite you to pray with me. Our God of grace, as we come into this place, we come, you know, maybe as we sit here on Easter Sunday 2016, maybe we just, we're sitting in our chair during that welcome time and we, um, we just, we're hoping we wouldn't have to talk to anyone. <laughs> 
just from whatever place we find ourselves this morning. Or maybe we're excited to tell a friend some good news. Maybe we're excited to unload some frustrations and it just felt good to have someone to listen. Maybe we heard something that puzzled us. Or maybe we held something back that's really going on, but we didn't dare say it. We come from different places. We come with, some of us with belief, some of us with doubt, some of us with comfort, some of us with difficulty. Maybe some of us sit here this morning and we just feel like we lost a spark in our connection to you. That uh, faith seemed so real, seemed so genuine and so full of life at one point, but now it seems dead. We wonder if we'll ever get it back. Maybe we feel like we got dragged along, we don't belong here at all. Maybe we come in, we just can't stop asking questions because something has clicked and we want to read more about what Christians believe and figure this all out. And yet from all these places, whether it's hurt or happiness, belief or unbelief, all these places we come from, we also have in common that we're more broken than we want other people to know. There's a spiritual fragility among us that is universal. And from that fragility, we listen to this message, this, this voice that calls through Scripture over and over and says, you move towards broken and messy lives with your grace, that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined, even as we simultaneously find ourselves to be broken. May you now teach us through this message and through the empty tomb. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The question of the week was, how, do you, how did you feel during your last visit to a cemetery? There weren't a lot of answers. It's just kind of a, that says something itself, right? Um, one person felt terrible because it was the death of a daughter of a good friend. Another person said they volunteer at the historical cemetery, so they, they felt peaceful. Another person said they felt longing, respect, love, and hope. All these different feelings. Um, I got a, win, in a window into how we, as a culture, are feeling these days about death. Um, 2016 will be remembered in, in the Holland family, I think, as the year that we got, this, we got cable television as a, an experiment. So this brand new thing is it's just, you know, brand new to us. And, of course, you, some of you might guess it's connected to my addiction to uh, the NBA basketball and the playoffs that are coming up. And, yes, it is. That's why, we, that's why we're doing it. I pushed for it. But I've also discovered all these other things. There's, there's more than basketball on cable television. <laughs> there's shows for our children. There's all these shows about, you know, what to do to your house and are you going to flip a house or, you know, what, you know, all these shows and... Um, and there's this, there's this show about the Bush people. I don't know if you've watched all these great shows that you can waste all this time. And then there's this show. Has anybody seen um, Flea Market Flip? Anybody seen it? Okay, a couple. Well, uh, you have to get an object at a flea market or a few objects, and then you've got to sell them at the next flea market after you spruce them up. So that's the concept. And there's teams, they compete. One team built this very odd bench with a lamp onto it. It was very non-mainstream kind of art piece for your bedroom and it ended up not getting purchased because it was just such a niche kind of item. 
it had on it, it had these kind of goth colors and this, this cemetery kind of feel, and then it had this handle on the front. Really cool, antique-looking handle. But it was just there as a, as a decor item on the front of this bench. And this woman walked up uh, at this flea market. She walked up, and she was playing with it. You know, it looks so cool, this cool handle. It's just this really beautiful, and she's holding it. And right as she's touching it, the guy who made it said, yeah, isn't that really cool? It's an old casket handle. And I'm not kidding, she jumped back about five feet. And it, the look on her face was like she had seen a ghost. Um, she was speechless. She basically just walked away from that point. Isn't that interesting? Just touching the handle that maybe was on a casket, that maybe had someone in it, at some, and yet it's here. So that, you know, it gives you pause. Like, I guess the casket did, didn't get used, maybe. I don't know. But... Um, isn't that interesting how our view, maybe you've got some of these kind of sensibilities about, you know, the idea that I said, hey, let's all go across to the cemetery after the service to watch the egg hunt. Woody Allen put it this way, I'm not afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Uh, and, I, I, and we passed around this blog post this week by a man named Brian Keepers, a great reflection on our culture's view of death, and in it he said, our culture has a tendency to fear and deny death. Another author I read this week said that um, we have turned dying into a medical experience, fending it off with whiz-bang procedures and drug cocktails until we end up tormenting patients, keeping them alive rather than helping them live. So I don't know, as we, as we look at this story, this is a story of people revolving, several people revolving around the experience of death and this tomb it's like, a it's like going to a cemetery. And maybe we bring some of that different experiential baggage of denial of death or avoiding death. But in this story, there's no doubt there's these people revolving around this tomb. And it's empty. Yeah, it's empty. It's totally empty. And that's what defines this story. That's what defines our mourning. That's why you're here. It's empty. Instead of arriving at this tomb and these four or five different characters, they, they don't experience the, the stench of death and that just feeling, that foreboding sense. They experience as they come to this tomb fresh newness and hope and excitement. It's a new day. And it's that experience, it's that kind of confrontation and grappling with the, the tomb that is empty that if you're going to consider Christianity or if you consider yourself a Christian, you have to grapple at some point with this. It's universal. You have to, in a sense, go in and peer into the empty tomb and grapple with it. What does this mean? This is the first reading that, that David did at the beginning. Peter walked away wondering what this meant. You have to grapple with this. It's universal. And, and I want to look, in fact, this story is great for looking at this because it, everyone's going to deal with the same thing, but you're all going to deal with it very differently. Our stories are different. We're different kinds of people. God has you on a different journey than me. Let's, let's think about four of these characters in this story. You've got Mary Magdalene at the beginning. How does she process this? What's her experience like? She's, she's basically in the midst of confusion and misinterpretation, right? They, somebody stole the body. She's hanging on to that throughout the story, all the way up until verse 14, until the angels are there um, to tell her otherwise. Somebody's somebody stole the body. She's confused. I, I wonder for you, if you're here this morning, in your moment 
of clarity about the empty tomb hasn't yet come. And if that's where you find yourself in grappling with the empty tomb today, I'd say welcome to City Life Church. City Life Church is a place that I think God's, in God's imagination of what this thing would be, as we started eight years ago, was very much for you if you're in that Mary Magdalene kind of place. Your moment of clarity hasn't arrived yet. There is room for you here. Trust me. And you might find help amidst the experiences of this church, the community of this church. There's room for you. I I mean, there shouldn't just be here at City Life. There's room for you in the body of Christian community worldwide to be like Mary Magdalene and take some time to move through this and find clarity. There's also John. Do you notice John? I love love this tidbit about John. I'm faster than Peter, right? (laughs) Isn't that so rich? It just kind of shouts at you that this is a real story, a real human story, because he just included that. He, he got to the tomb first. He was faster. He outran Peter, that slow poke. But when he gets there, notice he doesn't go in right away, right? He does, he's not the first one to actually go in. He peeks in. But so John, I wonder, I wonder if John, and he's the writer of this gospel. That's why he's, he kind of talks about himself. Um, he doesn't say I or John, but he's kind of elusive in how he talks about himself. I wonder if you're a little bit like John, some of you this morning, where, I, and I know this is true of me, where you are really helped by being in community, and seeing others, and have their stories, and their grappling with the big questions of faith, uh, echoing and bouncing off of your experience, kind of a reverberation. You're helped by walking through some of these tough questions together. You're helped by someone going in ahead of you, quite frankly, and being able to watch and see. And um, I don't know how many times I've been so comforted personally by the people that I know who have such a, are so much smarter than me. They just have this robust intellect and they have grappled with these questions about what the Christian faith on levels I could never even dream of grappling with, and yet they still hold to some of these same, to the, the same stuff that I hold to, right? Isn't that some, some of you, do you have that? You have people in your life that are like the credit, credibility get, bridges, right? They bridge the credibility gap for you. Maybe it's someone who's so compassionate because of their Christian faith. Maybe it's someone like me, someone that you think of like I do of, oh man, these smart people I know who have investigated, who have thought it through. Maybe it's someone who, um, who just, just to see how they've walked through pain or struggle and came out of it with faith just helps you and builds credibility in for you. I feel like that's John as he won't walk into the tomb until he sees Peter go ahead of him. And then of course there's Peter. Um, Peter is just that explosive personality. He's always all in, right? So I heard somebody once use this phrase to describe someone is that, oh, that's the kind of person that, you know, it doesn't necessarily matter what bus they're on. They need to be on a bus. You know, it's like, they, you know, so, so you might go extremely from one thing to the next thing, and now I'm in this thing. The, the point is I'm in something right now. Um, Peter is all in, right? And he's experiential. He's got to go in. He's got to touch. He's got to, he's all in. He's either all in or he's all out. I think about um, an author I read um, in this past year named Melinda Selmus. And as she um, talked about becoming a Christian and wrestling at a deep intellectual level with transitioning from her atheism to her Christianity, um, she knew immediately as she was considering this step of becoming a Christian and stepping into that line of faith or over that line of faith, she knew that it was going to have implications in some very important 
areas of her life. She knew right away if she, if she kind of prayed that prayer of acceptance of Jesus and was going to walk this journey that she was going to pick up that phone and end that relationship. I mean, that's, it was so specific. There's that sense of if I'm going in, I'm all in. Maybe that's you. Maybe you've got that personality. Um, and it's, it helps maybe to see Peter and to see how he just kind of dives right in. Now, there's the fourth character I want to mention. Maybe you, you, you'll get me here. On the, you'll be the Bible police and you'll say, you know, it's not in this particular story we read. It is a few verses later in the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Thomas, doubting Thomas. So or maybe or some of you are doubting. You need evidence. What did Thomas say? Until I see the nail marks in his hand, until I put my finger in the nail mark, you kind of go, oh. Uh, until I put my finger in, until I put my hand in his side, you know, because he was speared in his side to make sure he was dead. Do you need evidence? Uh, Thomas, he was like, no, I'm not going to buy this. I need to see it myself. I need evidence. And, so, and there is evidence. There is a wealth of evidence. Maybe you need to dig in. I don't, you know, we kind of unroll it again every year. We say a few things, you know, like one of the things that you can kind of see uh, hinted at in this story again is the fact that, this is so striking, if you are making up a story about Jesus rising from the dead, and, it was, and, it's getting tr- and you want it to get traction in the first century, immediate, instantaneous traction, and it was all going to depend on how you told the story, you would not include women as the primary witnesses, and yet all the stories do. Be- and, and the reason is, sadly, that women witnesses were not accepted, their testimony wasn't acceptable in a public court of law at the time. So just in terms of like, would you make up a story like this that has this... In the, and, and so you kind of say, well, maybe they weren't making it up. And maybe as the Apostle Paul, 20 years later, was writing the Corinthian church and they were starting to doubt that you, you really got to hold on to the whole real resurrection. Did that really happen? You know, they're skeptics of all millennium and there were skeptics of them. And, they were, and Paul felt the urge to write to them and say, no, listen, Jesus appeared not only to the disciples, but to f- over 500 people. Most of them are still alive Go check it out. Go talk to them. They're still alive. This is not, was not done in a corner. There's always been that sort of, a little bit of feistiness to say, put the evidence out there that the Christian faith really depends on this event of the empty tomb. And so let's revisit all the markers that show that, yeah, and one of them, and then we'll move on, but just on the theme of today, one of them is the virtual or the complete absence of tomb veneration in the history of the Christian faith. Jesus' tomb was not venerated. It was not a place to go to. It was almost as if it was immediately forgotten. Such an important figure, the whole Christian movement revolves around it. How could that be? The most basic explanation is that what is at the core of the Christian faith immediately negates the importance of that tomb. That the core thing was so much going the other direction away from death and into newness and into healing and into renewal of all things, that the tomb became immediately a forgettable part of the story. The point is that it's empty. So there's all these little markers. I could go on and on and I could give you books to read. If you'd like them, come up after the service and I'll tell you what to read. Are you more of a Mary? Are you more of a John? Are you more of a Peter? Are you more of a doubting Thomas? We've all got to grapple and go through the empty tomb. And when you do... It always leads, the Christian faith leads through the empty tomb into two key implications that are obvious in this text. 
and they're both obvious in Mary's experience. First, Mary goes from calling Jesus teacher to calling him Lord, saying at the end, I have seen the Lord. Very important. The empty tomb doesn't allow you the luxury of camping out on Jesus being just a teacher. Teachers leave behind a body of teachings and a body when they pass away. Jesus didn't leave behind a body of teachings. The whole movement, and he didn't leave behind his body. His teachings are there, but they are not primary, and that is not what Mary goes when she leaves the scene. It doesn't say Mary went and started sharing the teachings of Jesus and said, Jesus' teachings are the best ones. <laughs> when she went, she just went with the news, because that's what it is. There's news. That's what we have. In fact, Jesus, you know, a teacher leaves behind a body of teachings that can, and, and teachings can help you get a little more certain about things and get a little more clear about your journey and feel a little more assurance about life. The whole liberating part about the Christian faith is that it was not one more teaching, but Jesus was a liberator from the endless abyss of discouraging teachings that tell you that maybe if you just do this, you'll be acceptable to God. Because Jesus shows us as he comes out of the tomb and you look at his death and resurrection in a new life, new light, you see that he... He made you acceptable to God. That's what those actions were about. A teacher says, here's how you can cope. Here's what you can do to cope and strategize. The risen Lord says, here's what I've done that you can bank your life on. Here's how I have made you okay and acceptable with God even though you didn't deserve it. You can't do that on your own. I've done it. And so Mary goes forth with that news. The other major implication, and, this, and we'll close with this, is that you'll look at the broken world differently. The implication of the empty tomb is that you'll transition from Jesus being just teacher to him being Lord, and then also to look at the world, the broken world, differently. Our text in Isaiah 65, it says, um, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. And then it ends by saying, the sound of weeping and crying will be in it no more. Mary, by the time she gets to verse 16, she's been crying, she's been sobbing this whole story, and the tears finally start to dry up when she looks into the eyes of Jesus and sees him. And Isaiah 65 says that'll happen. It also says that I will create new heavens and new earth. I wonder how many of you have wrestled with or are sitting here with a conception of Christianity that is actually quite common where you say, the real point, the best thing, the thing I cling to, the thing that, the reason I'm in it is so that I can go to heaven when I die. And as there is some truth in that thread, I will say that, that that promotes an escapism that not only is foreign to the pages of the Bible, but it also is um, a hindrance to the credibility of the Christian faith in this city and amidst your neighbors. Jesus, through his incarnation and his resurrection, is God's picture of an embrace of physicality. And so you are invited with the Christian faith 
not to join a movement of escapism, but to join a movement of rebuilding and renewal. Because that's where it's all going. I will create a new heavens and a new earth. I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. There's a quote from N.T. Wright, a biblical scholar. He says, The creation was subjected to futility, to, tr- to transience and decay, until the time when God's children are glorified, when what happened to Jesus at Easter happens to all Jesus' people. The whole creation is on tiptoe with expectation, longing for the day when God's children are revealed when their resurrection will herald its own new life. It's about a new creation. That's the path this is on. It's not escapism, it's rebuilding. Did you notice how N.T. Wright in that quote, he kind of drew this connection from, and this is the biblical picture that he's just drawing out and explaining to us. Jesus rose from the dead. We rise from the dead and get new bodies. Resurrection and newness of life comes to all of creation. That's the path this is on. And that's what we're a part of if you find yourself with Jesus. Have you ever noticed, um, I mean, Mary has this moment where she, it's like she catches Jesus' eyes and decides, oh, he's not the gardener, he's, he's Jesus. And um, Have you ever noticed how you can have those moments with children? Children, you know, when they're, especially when they're around two or three and they're playing at the park or they're playing with a sibling and they're just... You know, they just want what they want and they're getting feisty. And there's something about a parent. Sometimes a parent can come in and it just switches things and it changes the dynamic and it's better, right? Because, you know, mommy can make things, all things, right. I had a moment like that with one of my kids where at my home office, there's a couple windows and they look out into the backyard where the kids are often playing and I couldn't help see this happen. It was very distracting, of course, because right outside the window, you know, this skirmish has happened, and there's a three-year-old there that is just sobbing and mad because, you know, the world is unjust, and I'm not getting what I want, and I'm three, right? And some of you are like, well, I'm 30, or I'm 40, and I'm doing the same thing. That's, you know, the world is like it's broken. You don't get what you want. It doesn't work the way it's supposed to. And, and so this child is sitting there like that. And I mean, just if you can imagine the most extreme anger and sadness all coming out at once in his face. And I just, I tapped on the glass. You know, he's five feet away. And then, turn, and then I gave this biggest, happiest, loving look on my face, a smile. And it's like, the tears dried up instantaneously. I couldn't believe it. I, didn't, I actually didn't think it would do much, but I thought, well, I'll try it. <laughs> I mean, it was like unbelievable forgetting immediately all of what was happening or just seeing it all in a new light, right? Because they're steady and all things will be all right. Friends, when Mary sees the risen Jesus, when you grapple with him, when you finally lock eyes on the risen Jesus, You'll still go through those experiences. You'll still have the red face. You'll still have the tears. Those, those don't go away, but they change. That question that they ask Mary, Jesus and the angels ask, why? Why are you crying? It's not stop crying, right? Is it, don't stop. Why? It forces you to probe and say, yeah, how, how, do, how am I looking at these injustices, at this sadness, at this sorrow, the empty tomb, 
the risen Jesus creates a shift and you look at the world afresh. You're not part of an escapism from this unjust world. You're part of a rebuilding effort. Will you pray with me? Dear God, we pray that in some way today we may walk away understanding you better and your love for us and your grace. Tomb forces us to consider if you could beat death, then why didn't you do it a little sooner? And the reason is because you had to go to the cross. You had to, to bring your lost children home so that there could be people throughout this world who are not eating and drinking and being merry. They're not escaping and living in just the now, but they're living in the future. We pray that you bring us and draw us into that reality through the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name. And everyone says, Amen. Amen.